All right, folks, how y'all doing? Welcome to uh, the first episode, uh, the pilot episode of the Three Times Dope podcast. Hey, uh, that's my hey, super <laughs> happy and excited about this new venture. Uh, but before we start, let's get some introductions, uh, and uh, we'll we'll start with the with the with the the beautiful young lady that's on the uh, podcast right now. Just tell the folks who you are. I am Dr. Heather Hairston um, in the building. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me and allowing me to join. Allowing, <laughs> sir. Robert Simmons uh, joining from DC by way of, or as my mother would tell me, by way of Atlanta. Raised in Detroit, born in Atlanta. So uh, she reminded me of that today when we were having a long conversation. So I'm just happy to be here, man. Um, I find that as I've gotten older, being in community with people where you could just have real conversations, unpack, you know, uh, the days, trials, and tribulations is important, right? Because it's, 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 it's a challenge to be yourself and show up. You know, they always say, oh, well, I want to be able to show up as my full self at work. Nah, <laughs> not necessarily. I mean, can't give it all to you. But I can show up as my full self here. And uh, knowing both of y'all as professionals and as friends, uh, I can't think of a better pair of people to engage with in conversation every week. So I'm, I'm glad to be here with y'all. That's what's up. All right. I'm Ray Ankrum. Uh, I'm a co-host as well, and uh, and these guys keep me grounded in terms of uh, not jumping out the window. And so, <laughs> th- thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, but let's 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 uh, let's get to it, man. So um, we got something for y'all. And so instead of just jumping all over the place, we want to make sure that we're streamlined and that you guys in the audience are keeping us honest in terms of uh, touching on the things that we need to touch on from week to week. And so. Uh, we'll periodically put up our topics to make sure that we're on task because we are all educators. We are all <laughs> uh, current and former school leaders. And so we need to have uh, some, <laughs> we, need, we need to have some order, terms, <laughs> some measurable objectives <laughs> and some order in terms of how we are approaching uh, this work. And that is super important for us. So uh, bear with us as we, uh, as we get to it. And so first thing we're going to talk about, we're talking about protecting black women, right? And so um, I, I, I want to hear you guys' thoughts on, on this because what, what happens is, like, I feel like we hear folks that will say that will say this, right? It's like a countermeasure. It's like, you know, it's like, all right, it's the new sexy thing, protect black women. But then your actions um, are more so like, you hate black women in terms of like how your actions. So it's like your words or like, all right, well, I'm super supportive and uh, and black women mean this and mean that or whatever. But then you'll see people's, people's actions and they'll be like, well, damn, how can you care about black women if you're doing this and you're saying this and you're listening to this and you showing up this way, right? And so, um, H, I'm, I'm glad you're here because you could kind of tell us how we need to protect black women. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> just protect them. Like, it's, it's not complicated. <laughs> it's not like um, math or, or some like thing that no one can figure out. Like I think protecting black women means first recognizing that they are worth being protected. 
Um, I think a lot of times for Black women and girls, we are often seen as, you know, resilient and tough and persevering. And I got it and put it on my back. I can do it. And I think that sometimes makes others think that we're not in need of softness or in need of protection or in need of um, just the attention that is required to keep someone safe. I think we can do a better job in our in aligning our words and in our actions. And then I think just also remembering that, that we're human, right? Like we all have individual needs and there are some collective needs that we just like need to honor. And, you know, I think I, I'm grateful that, that there are people who protect me um, and who want to make sure that I'm safe. And I am hyper sensitive of that when it comes to protecting other people. Um, but we got to just first recognize and, and give Black women the protection that they need and and the respect that they require and just recognize that it's something that they are, in, that that is their birthright. They're entitled to that. They shouldn't have to go above and beyond to be safe and be protected. And we have to to disrupt these such images of them being so strong and hard that they got it. They can do it. They got it. Like we, we got to undo that. Yeah. Thanks for that. That was dope. Uh, Doc, what's your thoughts, man? Protecting black women. I mean, I think, I think the, the thing, the, the, the fascinating part about this is that um, I always think about it as, as not the physical sign of protection, but also at least from my perspective and vantage point in higher education, the, the, the way in which I operationalize it by always elevating the voices of my colleagues who are black women that I work with, that I learn from daily, that I write with. Um, and shout out to Jennifer Beckwith. She does a lot of STEM work in DC. And as an example, I had an opportunity where someone wanted me to write an article. And I was like, all right, well, what is it about? So they're telling me it's about what does anti-racism look like in schools? And I'm like, I can give you theoretical perspective, one, and an academic perspective, but I'm not actually in schools anymore in the same way. She is. And she's one of our doc students at American University. She's in year one. I hit her up and was like, hey, I got this article I got to write. I need you to send me a draft in a week. She was like, what? And I'm like, let's go. So... Here's the outline and it's getting published on the 28th of uh, January. Right. And she was just kind of like overwhelmed because I viewed her as the expert, not simply because she's a black woman, but because she's an actual expert in her craft. Right. And I think that <clears throat> that was important to me because she was first author on this joint. She's like, yeah, but they came to you and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but these are your words. I'm just adding to it and editing it, right? So I think it's, it's not just the physical protection of Black women, but it's also about when there's an opportunity to support and elevate the brilliance of Black women about things that aren't just about being Black women, right? Like that's one of the frustrating things that I find especially in higher ed, right? Well, this sister, she does research on black women. Yeah, that may be true, but like she always writes about other things too. So I, I just I just find that that's what I try to do and elevate 
things like that uh, when it comes to protecting black women. It's just working with them um, and uh, letting them know. I just got off a call with a black woman whose sister who's um, finishing her dissertation and she she was nervous as her dissertation chair to send it to me to read her draft. And I was like, yeah, but like, I told you to book your ticket to come to graduation May 7th. Like, what? Like, I ain't gonna leave you hanging. Like, what? no, like, and to me, it's this like, it's, it's embedded in me because of, I was raised by my mother and my grandmother because my father spent my whole life in prison, right? So for me, understanding how black women showed up for me as a youngin in Detroit means that I owe it to my mother and my grandmother to do the same for sisters because they did it for me. Um, and I just think that it's uh, super uh, important. So, yeah, thanks for that. It's, but, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, we, we're all we all have black mothers right and so it starts there right it starts with the protection of of, of mother of motherhood if your mom is you know has showed up for you and given you the things that you need in order to be nourished in order to be whole in order to be who you are like wh why why wouldn't you protect that or protect uh any kind of like relationships you're going to be in whether whether it's platonic relationships or whether it's work relationships or whether it's love it's just like no, we got to see these things. We got to be able to call them out. We got to be able to have conversations about it. You know, when people are showing up toxic, you know, we got to be able to call each other out, each other out as men, right? And we got to be able to have these difficult conversations in order to kind of lift the race. And so thank you guys for this portion of the show, right? You know, yeah. getting behind black women and, 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 and showing them uh, some love. So I appreciate, I appreciate being able to unpack that, right? And so- Let's go back to our topics because, again, we want to make sure that we are streamlining this and we are staying focused <laughs> and on the objective. Time on task. Right? Hey, yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, the second topic is uh, is voting rights, man. Uh, real, it's been it's, it's been in the news. You know, MLK uh, birthday and then the federal holiday uh, just passed us, January fifteenth birthday, and then uh, this past Monday, yesterday was the uh, federal holiday. And so, you're seeing folks that are. Oh, really uh, up in arms with the fact that we have two senators that uh, on the Democratic side that they feel are being obstructionist in terms of, um, you know, being on the wrong side of history. And so just wanted to gather your thoughts in terms of like things that you guys have been seeing. Um, also, um, you know, you, you got you got stars that are coming out that are, you know, that are uh, that are talking about this and that are for this or whatever you got. Uh, the people that are in these two states with these senators that are for this, the majority of the folks that are there in those two states want this, right? You want everybody to have the right to be able to vote. And so what are your thoughts? Folks in the comments, what are y'all's thoughts on voting rights? Uh, make this interactive. You got any questions in these comments that on the topics that we're talking about, although we may have a level of expertise, you guys are experts too. And we want to make sure that you get involved and you get your shine too. So if you're in the audience, please hit us up and let us know what you're thinking. And so, Doc, we'll start with you, sir. Um, what were your thoughts? First of all, man, like, this is one of the most frustrating things that I have seen in my other side of 40 lifetime, right? And part of it is we, we have let people off the hook. What I mean is that <clears throat> I want to be measured in how I lay this out. 
I am not opposed to infrastructure. I am not opposed to build back better, child tax credit, any of that. However, one of the fundamental rights we have as to the reason why we have a democracy is the power of the ballot to inform decisions of our congressional leaders, so on and so forth, right? And if, if you take away the right and the access to voting, you no longer have a democracy. You skew towards becoming a totalitarian state, right? But yet, some of these same people that don't want to pass voting rights claim that they're patriots. And it's like, yeah, but like, okay, I hear you and I respect your belief in patriotism, but you should also respect my belief in voting to contribute to our democracy. Why would you make it more difficult? And, you know, as someone whose uh, parents, uh, when they were students at Morehouse and Spelman, helped support Coretta Scott King and the launching of the center that she um, started working on in about 68. Um, my mother always told me one of the things that she always took from that was why it's important for us to vote. And she said, I don't care whether it's standing in line for two hours, it's important for you to vote. And I was, I was actually so uh, interested today when I was thumbing through Twitter and I saw this letter that actually had Nick Saban's name on it, right? And I didn't, I'd forgotten that Nick Saban was from West Virginia. I'll forgive him for his missteps as football coach at Michigan State University <laughs> um, and his failures, but neither here nor there. Um, I just, Jerry West, Paul Tagliabue, all sports icons in their particular fields sent a letter to Joe Manchin and said, bro, like, wh what are you doing? Like this, this is, this is madness. Um, and it just pains me because so many of our ancestors paid the ultimate price for the right to vote. And yeah. yet it just seems like no one wants to do anything with the filibuster. Everyone wants to pay, play polite with this, but like, I just, it worries me because what happens if they do take away our right to vote in so many states as they already have started to, that could be the end of democracy as we know it. Um, and it and it worries me because my grandmother would always stand in line to vote. She didn't yeah. do early ballots. I don't even know if they had early ballots back when she was voting, but I remember being a kid and her taking me with her to vote in every election. And one time I said to her, like, why do we have to vote in every election? She said, because someone died for us to have this right. So you about to stand in line with me so you can see what happens when we close that curtain. And I was like, I mean, you know, I had a grandmother from Newmarket, Tennessee. So once they say something like that, you just like, <laughs> all right, then, like, I'm going to just be quiet. So I think for me, it pains me to know that we're on the precipice of potentially not to walking away from what a true democracy looks like by giving people access to vote. Like, 
I don't even care who people vote for necessarily. I like, you mean we can't have 24 hour ballots? I actually think we should make election day a national holiday. If we really believed in everyone's right to vote, we should just cancel schools, close down work. Everybody go vote and make it a, make it a full week. Why is it election day? Like, give me a week to go. But I had to jump ahead. Let me get this guy off the screen. So here, so I like Rob. Um, <laughs> had some very, um, you know, clear memories of being younger, and my mother and I going to the middle school in my community and going into vote, and her closing the curtain, and then me saying, "Who did you vote for?" And she would say, "Well, that's none of your business. You don't. That is my right to not tell you who I vote for." And she would go on and tell me that people were harassed and killed and intimidated because of who they they voted for, and, and just all of those things. And so for me, I just I always felt like voting was something kind of very adult, like you know, when you're younger and you see your uh, people drink coffee and you're like, ooh, when I grow up, I'm going to have coffee. It, to me, it was like, I'm going to have coffee and I'm going to vote, right? I didn't really want to drive a car that much, but I definitely wanted to vote. It meant something to me. I think what's frustrating to me is like the issue around access and, and innovation and increasing opportunity for access. To me, I just think that a lot of the discussion around like the constitution and the way it was written and what they meant, right, I get it. But that was designed and crafted for a different time when people had to punch, when people think about the the punch ballots, right? The ones used to stick their little pen in, it looked like a, like a little pen could go through it. When we realized that there were challenges around that and things evolved, we made it easier to have access so that we could be more efficient. And so the fact that it feels like a lot of these rules and regulations are both decreasing access, specifically in places where people are black and brown and there's a large number of new voters, to me just seems so obvious. Like it's not that you don't want to have people vote. You don't want these people to vote. And you don't want these people to vote in these particular places that could potentially be swing states, right? They're looking at the way the world is changing. They're looking at the way demographics are changing. They're looking at the way that 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 even demographics are not even necessarily around race, but also around age, right? We got a lot of young people, young people who are in their first year voting, who were students in our classes, who were kids that we taught, and they are coming up and they are sick of it. They are tired. They have a voice. We have taught and modeled them. And so there is some real fear. I, I just think I, I'm just stopped, shocked at how in some ways we want to be innovative and cutting edge and have new ways. And you can buy anything you want from your phone, but we can't create apps where folks can vote right now. I recognize that some things will create problems and there's hacking and things, but we have to be innovative and we have to be thinking about those who don't have access in in new ways if we really want people's vote to count. And it also isn't even about your vote counting. It's it's about voting. It's about saying what it is you believe in, but it also is about like, how do you handle yourself when you don't win? And some of that has just been so ugly. Like, could you imagine having wow. a field day and the first person comes in and they win and you're like, well, no, I don't think that they should win because I, I think you should do it again. Like what? Like where is just the like put the H on your back and handle it like you lost. You didn't win this time. Keep being active. Let's see how you can do this. But this thought of like I can be loud and wrong. I used to tell my kids all the time. Right. Like what you can't be is wrong and strong. Okay. 
you can't not do your homework and then be mad at me about your consequence, right? Now, you can't be that, you can't do that. And what we see is that there are so many people who have been voted who, whose responsibility, their only job is to speak on behalf of their constituents who are walking around wrong and strong, making up things that aren't true. They can, they could have lost and kept that same energy to mobilize people and to inspire a new group. Instead, they want to just keep talking about things that we know aren't true. And so I think, yes, it's about the history of voting. Yes, it's about access, but it also is about how we conduct ourselves and like where is the like right is right and wrong is wrong. Um, yeah, that's my that's my plug on. Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, for me, it, I, I guess it's totally different. Uh, growing up, I really didn't have folks that were as outwardly expressive about voting, um, and so I didn't have that as like is like my model uh in terms of in terms of growing up but what i did see a lot is that i would see politicians that would uh get on their pulpit and say that they were going to do certain things and then never do it right and so i think that that was the piece for me that kind of spurred me into like wanting to be politically active is that you know if you say you're going to do something then we need to hold you accountable for what you say you're going to do so what happens i think in, in, in american politics uh, is that, you know, you'll get folks that will say whatever they need to say in order to get into office, but yet they are not held accountable for the things that they need to do uh, based off of what they said. And so I think one of the struggles for me in terms of just like the Biden agenda, um, because as a Republican who supported Biden, um, I think that, you know, going in, it looked very good, uh, you know, with, with, you know, winning Georgia um, and, and then having the... Um, having a majority in, uh, in, a, in a Democratic Senate and then also having Nancy Pelosi uh, and, um, and the, the, the moderates, I'll say, uh, in, in the House, right? It's just a lot of expectations, right? So I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of spending um, and, and that gives me anxiety because somebody has to pay for that spending, uh, preferably me uh, and folks like me and you and, and everybody that's on this podcast. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like, even if you don't, even if you're anti-socialist agenda, um, America needs to do better by its poor people. America needs to do better by its old people, right? And those are, um, uh, are some, of the, uh, some, some of the folks that usually just get overlooked in terms of just American politics. And then uh, I think lastly, uh, I have a problem with the electoral system in general, right? Um, I don't like the fact that you have states that have a population of like 20 that have two senators and then you have uh, DC who has the arrival population of these states and they have no representation That's in right. terms of, right. in terms of having, in terms of having senators. Right. And, and think about this, right. Just think about uh, how DC is made up. If DC had two, two senators right now, will we even be having this argument about what Joe Manchin is doing and what Christian cinema is doing? It wouldn't even matter. Right. Uh, they can continue to be centrist, whatever it is they want to be, um, but they wouldn't be able to be obstructionist, right? And so mm. I think that that's important to point out in terms of how we look at politics. And so, but one of the things that resonated for me, uh, Rob, you were talking about uh, Nick Saban and and, and, and and that catalog of folks from West Virginia that were pushing Joe Manchin. I saw the Stevie Wonder, uh, the Stevie Wonder post. Right. That Stevie Wonder post was so powerful for me. Uh, I think more powerful than than uh, than any of the um, civil rights icons that, you know, we put on these pedestals or whatever. Right. I think the only other person that 
that had a message that kind of transcended was uh was MLK the Third's message mm. um out, out in Arizona that was powerful as well. And so you know it, at the end of the day when we when we're thinking about uh, voting rights and we're thinking about all these things that we need to be thinking about, you know, we got to put the people first and and let that and let the people's voice kind of transcend. But think about this though, right? Even with all of this obstruction of, uh, of of folks voting, you know that only galvanizes people, right? You know that only pisses black people off. You know that only pisses brown yeah. people off, and it's it's only going to activate the base even more at the fact that you're trying to stop them from doing something, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that if you're trying to stop them from doing something, you make it so think about what they're doing in Georgia, right? You're making it illegal to give folks water that have been in uh that have been in line for, for hours in order to uh in order to vote. But that's only gonna piss them off. It's only gonna make them bring coolers out, they're gonna tailgate the vote. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's it's like that, right? Because of all these books that their people are banning, right? There are all of these secret black book, you know, or these CRT book clubs and folks who are, yes. are getting together in secret and in silence. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of these books that they're putting on the ban list have reemerged as top sellers because it's like, oh, you want to keep, it's like when you were little, if somebody told you don't do it, it was tempting. It was like, oh, let me now I really got to go and do it. Um, yeah. I think too, though, in the talk about the electoral college and about a lot of these archaic systems that just aren't necessarily relative in the current mm -hmm. structure, you know, they do all these Gallup polls and the, the Gallup and the Kaiser Family Foundation just did a poll that showed this is the first time since a long time ago where there are more folks who are identifying as Republican over Democrats. And so they looked at the shift of how at one particular time it was this number and now it's this number. And they were looking at this data that showed that in all of the elections, I think like starting in 2008, 16 and a few others that they said whoever had the majority of folks who identified in that um, party were more likely to win. Um, and so we see not only this shift, but like a shift in folks who are independent and folks who may align to one party, but have um, views or particular alliance to another particular issue. Right. It's like, yeah. what, what, yeah. there was did Chris Rock say that time. He's like, nobody's a, conservative on everything right you may be conservative mm -hmm. with spending but like liberal with your free time and so i think we yeah. could do a better job of of not necessarily thinking i'm with this party so i got to be this way and just saying i'm with this party mm -hmm. and on a variety of issues i land in a variety of different places but yeah, I, I, I think that that's hard though for so many people I, I had this conversation with the on the chat that i'm on with uh for fantasy basketball and there's one guy who's real hardcore Democrat. And there are a couple of us on there who are like, well, yeah, but like you, you can't believe that the Democratic position on everything is right. Can you? Like, you can't possibly believe that. Right. And I, I just find that um, there's a lack of nuance, um, you know, uh, to these discussions. And, you know, and it reminds me of going into the barbershop and saying something that was critical of a decision that the Obama administration would make. And it was like, oh my God, how can you critique it? I'm like, I'm not critiquing him. I'm critiquing a particular policy that his administration put forward. And as black people, we should be the main ones holding him accountable to our agenda. Yeah, and What's important to us, like, it doesn't mean we don't love. I mean, I loved what him, Michelle, and their girls stood for in terms of being a family, 
and all them things. Like I ain't had no knock against him as a person, but like there were certain policies. Where I was like, eh, I disagree, but like I ain't the president. So like, you know, but you asked my opinion sitting in the chair with the Clippers. So I disagree. Doesn't mean I'm critiquing him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I just think that there's this like need to really unpack that we can two things can be true at the same time both in our social agenda as black folks in the political space but also in in communities right so i think that it's super important yeah um thanks for sharing that um yeah it's definitely important but uh back to this because i don't want elton Michelle in these comments talking crap <laughs> staying focused uh <sighs> So the next topic I want to talk about is uh, prison versus college love. And, and, and so meaning love of the community. And so I want to I want to set this up. I want to do this the right way. Right. So I uh, I just returned from a trip. Uh, I was in Covington, Louisiana, my hometown. And so in a lot of uh, a lot of these, these port cities that are, are near uh, drug trafficking <laughs> opportunities for folks or whatever that don't want to go and work and do what they need to do uh for whatever reason um you'll have uh neighborhoods that are supportive of everyone right regardless of if they're doing the right thing regardless of if they're doing the wrong thing whatever and i've always had like this area of contention with me with regards to like how neighborhoods receive folks that go away and graduate from college are folks that uh, do whatever they do and then end up in prison, right? And I think that my neighborhood is not unique in the tame in, in, in the sense of I feel like a lot of our neighbor, a lot of black neighborhoods do this, right? And so I wanted to get y'all's perspective in terms of y'all's thoughts of uh, of this happening, and we could turn this into a, 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 a conversation. What are y'all's thoughts? <laughs> so as you were describing that, I immediately started thinking about the difference between leaving and being taken away. Um, mm. And I also thought about, you know, um, which made me think about the difference in how you feel and the role that choice plays. And so if I choose to go off into college or to the military, even right, that's a choice. I made it. Y'all support me. See you later. Go be great. Versus some feelings of helplessness and communities and situations that have been created that you didn't have a choice in. Um, And I wonder if that plays a part in how these acknowledgements or celebrations happen in these particular communities. Because if you make me Mm. and take it from me, there's a different level of it. I experience it differently than if it was something I decided to do. Mm, okay, wrapped up yeah, ahead. That's you know, it's interesting because I think about growing up where I grew up at in Detroit and having seen this, right? And when mm-hmm. homies would come home, it was like a big celebration across the neighborhood, right? And there was this one uh cat who um ended up going to one of the worst high schools in the city. He was in my neighborhood, we played sports together. And ended up getting a scholarship for engineering or something to go to university in Michigan. And, you know, 
I was like, good for you, dog. Like, that. But there was no celebration. There were comments like, oh, you trying to act white. Uh, what was the other one they called him? Uncle Tom. Which is which which we can come back to, but they're misusing the word yeah. Uncle Tom. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> and I was always perplexed by that because even to this day, we're friends. And I I never understood why we never celebrated this brother leaving. Mm-hmm. But yet, and in, in the cases in my neighborhood. Most of the cats wasn't wrongly convicted. No, like they no. actually did. <laughs> they actually did mm-hmm. what they were charged with, right? Like wrongful convictions is a different conversation, mm-hmm. right? And I was always perplexed by it. Um, and I've never actually tried to think about it and figure it out until uh, you mentioned it earlier today, because. I don't know. I participated in celebrations when brothers and sisters came home from prison. Of course. And I never I ain't never think anything about it because it was that sense of even if they had done something mm-hmm. I felt like they had been taken from me. Like mm-hmm. they had been removed and they needed to be celebrated because I also sometimes felt like they weren't going to get celebrated in society because we we all know that when you return from prison mm-hmm. you continue yep. to be marginalized of and course. people judge you based on what you did not mm-hmm. on the change that you may have made while you were locked up and so i think yeah, but there's, some, there's, yeah, there's some there's some instances where change doesn't occur right oh, that's if you, true. If you, so if you if you go to prison and you come home and then you do the same thing and then you go back to prison, like we can celebrate you the first time, but shit, we ain't gonna be celebrating you every time you come home and you you choose yeah. to right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think for me, the whole conversation around the prison industrial complex is deeply personal because of my lack of a relationship with my father, right? And I always tell the story, y'all have heard me talk about it, that he was the non-black male stereotype because he spent my whole life in prison and he had a Morehouse degree. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and he stole my social security number. Like I had a, I had a, a yeah, for real, for real. I had an that's account. A, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a common thing in the black community. I ain't never know that until I was 18 and I got to college <laughs> and I told my mother, and I was like, what's a credit report? Like they say I got an account at Dress Barn. I don't even know what Dress Barn yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that there's a whole, that's a whole, a whole other episode. on um, the complexities and nuances of the relationship with sons who are adults Mm. and Mm. fathers, right? Because people always ask me, like, well, you ain't name name either of your two boys after you. And I was like, hell no. Because being the third is enough, right? But I think my point I'm getting at is that because of my hyper-awareness and connection to the emotional incarceration. Because early on, I was emotionally incarcerated while my father was physically incarcerated. Because mm-hmm. it didn't register with me. Like, well, you got a Morehouse degree. 
but yet, like, wh what are we doing here, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think for me that the people coming home part is something I never gave a second thought to because I think deep down I wanted my father to come home. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, wanted, I wanted to have that, like, emotional kind of celebration of seeing my daddy walk through the door as opposed to seeing him drug out the door. And so I yeah. think, you yeah. know, it's complicated yeah. I, for me personally. Yeah, yeah. No, bro. I, I, so, I, so I feel the same way. I had an uncle who who raised me after my grandmother died, and uh, he ended up uh, getting charged with a, a drug trafficking charge, probably like around eighty nine, ninety. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally didn't have it to do. Um, he was the he had, he was becoming the patriarch of, our, of of our family, right? So, like, there were people that needed him. He had a young daughter. Um, and so, you know, it ended up just trying to just move too fast or whatever. Right. But that was his choice. That's a choice that he made. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it, you know, it, it happened like right around high school and that's when we needed him. Like I needed him, bro. I, I felt like if he was, if he was there, like giving guidance the way that he was like throughout my entire life, I probably could have went to the league. Right. But like, I, th I think that my desire to play sports, um, at a high level, kind of subsided when you know you lose people to prison and you like you 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 it's just like all right i just want to live now but i don't know really what what i want to live for i don't know if i want to live to make this person proud or or what right so like i i, I had some struggles with that and then um i guess throughout college I, I just i felt this anger toward towards them because it's like man shit i'm sitting here and i'm struggling like i'm seeing I'm seeing my, my, my peers they're getting care packages and they're getting all these other things i'm not getting any of this stuff you know, I got to go out, I got to do work study, I got to do all these other things in order to make ends meet when you could be home and you could be sending me care packages, you could be supportive and whatnot. Like, you know, and, and granted, you know, he used to hustle and do whatever he, he used to do and, you know, try to send, uh, send write all the time and um, send cards and do all these other things and whatnot. So that was dope, but it wasn't what I needed. I needed more. And the fact that, you know, that, that, that was... Yeah, and the fact that you know he wasn't there, but then you know to counter that when he came home, shit, I celebrated the hell out of him, man, because you know it, it's it's like, man, you you raised me, so even though you know even though you didn't give me everything that I felt like I needed, you didn't give your daughter everything that you know she felt like she needed, or whatever, you you tried to do something, right? And so, but I know that the pathway of coming home. It's terrible for folks, right? You come home, you got these strikes against you. It's hard for you to get a job. And it's easy for you to gravitate to that life that you become accustomed to because fast money is a thing. Money is a thing. Having yeah. money is a thing. And so, you know, you have, but but then the, the struggle for me also is the fact that, like, what you mean you ain't going to work at McDonald's? What? <laughs> Yo, you work wherever you get a job, bro. Like, what are you talking about? You too good to work for McDonald's. You just been working in prison for 20 years. What the hell you mean for, for one cent an hour? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, but I, mean, I, think, I think that's complicated too, right? And I, I think, you know, when we think about recidivism and the ways that these systems sometimes, like, you know, come on. There are people who haven't been to prison who can't make a decent wage working at McDonald's, right? And so if you if you yeah. want folks, you know, if you had more I think it depends on what state you're in. Because $16 an hour is decent. It does. But they pay sixteen dollars an hour at McDonald's. Six, 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 sixteen fifty. But I mean, there's a that's a lot of there are a lot of other things. The price of living, where you are, if you have kids, what them taxes do, how many dependents you have, all those kinds of things matter. 
Um, I mean, I don't know. I What I love about our community is that when we succeed, everybody gets to take a little bit of that. And And coming home safely from prison is a something to celebrate, you know? I've, yeah. I had family members who were killed in prison. So you made it out? <laughs> who on the grill? Like we we have to to mm. celebrate those yeah. to those Fair things. Enough. To acknowledge yeah. those things. Um and, and we we got and where we can do a better job is in the supports that folks get coming out and the supports that their families need to, right? Because yeah. there are some things that systems could have provided some counseling, some therapy, some peer groups to keep folks connected, some additional resources to make sure that folks had what they needed um, so that when they came out, they wouldn't go into this cycle of just going back again and again and again. And so, you know. Yeah, but in my defense, even with all of my anger, I set him up real nice coming home. Right? He ain't have to worry about shit. He ain't have to worry about rent. He ain't have to worry about none of that stuff. This dude was set up nice. He was set up to be successful. And I'm proud of him because, you know, with everything that was provided for him, he made the best of it. And right now, he he's uh, so you remember watching Fred Sanford, right? And so yeah. Sanford is signed. And so I, I created this arm in Baltimore. I call it uh, Sanford Arms, right? And so he's the director of Sanford Arms. Right, he picks up and maintains my properties that are in Baltimore and stuff. Right, so like he's doing things that he needs to okay. do in order to be productive. I set him, but I set him up real nice. How many people are coming home to a nice setup? Not many. A lot Not of many. people are coming I mean, home to, to they're coming home to that anger that you felt to that yeah, you yeah. left me to now we had to do this to now we made all these poor choices of such and such and this is your fault because you weren't here. So that's how I we mean, got the, the, the larger world. question. I still hey, he, hey, he in the he in the comments. He in the comments. <laughs> 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 what up, Unc? <laughs> Unc, Unc showed up, man. We got that <laughs> Unc on the show, man. We got that Unc on the yeah. show. Yeah. So uh, we getting. I don't want us to get short on time. You know, El Michelle is tracking it. So, um, <laughs> can we be? Uh, can the village, uh, be the village raising the child be restored? And so, mm. so of course, you know, yesterday, uh, I'm I'm in I'm in my hometown and I do a keynote, and so what I said was, you know, real simple. Uh, when my uncle went went when when he went um to prison, I became not a ward of the state, but a ward of my community. Right. Mm. And so there were certain people in my community that were not going to let me fail. Mm. They knew this kid is smart. Mm. Uh, he has some athletic ability and he's one of the ones that can make it out of this community. And so even when I fell, my community picked me up. Right. I had uh, preachers and, and community based organizations that were behind me, giving me the support that I didn't have uh, from my family. So I never felt unloved. Uh, by my community right and so you know I, I owe a great deal of gratitude to the folks in Covington Louisiana it's like when I see uh, when I see folks talking about having black educators right and then you'll have some folks that haven't had a black educator until they got to university level uh, some folks never really had a, a, a black educator in their life and we see this constant push in order for us to have more black male educators or more black educators in general, because everybody, um, everybody benefits from having that level of diversity in their education. I can never say that. Mm -hmm. I had at least 10 black educators uh, in, in my K-12 
and all of them poured into me uh, in a, an amazing way. And so, you know, I just wanted to get y'all's thoughts on uh, on, on on that. Hmm. I mean, brother, you said it. Like, <laughs> I ain't even got nothing to add. Like, that's El Michelle probably gonna be like, y'all ain't got nothing to say. Like, nah. I mean, one. <laughs> So first of all, like I gotta give my brother the shine, right? Because Ankrum always sends the elevator down to other people, right? Of course, yeah. and and he shows love. And that's my dude, right? He know that. Like seven thirty in the morning, like text messages. Ain't heard from you all day. You good, bro? Like what's you good? Yeah. This cat did his keynote yesterday and is on this podcast with us today. Yeah. Right. And I just think that, um, you know, it's important to acknowledge the way that you showed up in Covington and shared what you just shared, because there's a need for us to center. And I literally was typing this. Even when I failed my even when I failed, my community picked me up. I never felt unloved by my community. I just want to let that sit. Because this is why having teachers, as Gloria Lassen-Billings talks about, other mothering and other fathering is so important, right? Because this extension of what we mean by community is crucial when we think about our babies. It's not just about, for me, it was going to Cronk Recreation Center, which is most people know boxing. It was a box. It was known nationally as a boxing gym, but it was a recreation center. Mm-hmm. You know, they had sports, basketball, things like that. And um, w- we need to be engaged in a way with both local nonprofits and schools and others to build out supports that reimagine ways in which we can love our kids. So I'll stop there because that shit, man, like, it ain't nothing yeah. to say. Like that's but, hey, and I went to work, and I went to work today, right? Because because listen, here's the thing: I went to work, I went in a little late, but I think that it was important because I got I I, I expressed to my staff, I'm like, listen, we're not going to be extending weekends, we're not going to be doing any, any any of this kind of stuff, we're not because we got children to look after, right? This is about it's not about us, it's not about our egos, this is about our kids and, and us giving them what they need to get, right? So like, it, it was important for me to show up to work today. So nobody could be like, well, he extended his weekend. No, no, I didn't. I'm here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think <laughs> listening to both of you talk is it, it's just a love story, right? Like it's a love story with our communities, with the people and the things in the communities, right? You know, with, with walking to school, with the corner store, with, with all of those things. I think yeah. to get back to the question around like, will we ever get there? I think to me, something that was important about community is that folks stayed for a while, right? The folks lived in the corner, they stayed at the block. There wasn't a lot of this moving and hopping from place to place. You knew exactly who moved in. All the kids went to the same schools. They all did the same things in the summer. There was this uh, stability in the community, even when they were broken, even when things were bad. And so when we think about the way community has changed and how a lot of the people who always lived at the same place aren't living there as long anymore, um, 
we think about the way that we entertain and engage with others, right? You know, so many of us are coming in and out of the house. We're not staying outside. Nobody's sitting out front. Um, you know, you're not at the corner. You're being harassed. It's too cold out. It's too hot out. They get, you know, it's just all of those things help create that hedge of protection for you. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was talking to my mother, my mom. So my mom raised me single parent. Um, I'm the only child, no sisters and brothers, but I never felt alone. I always had a friend of her coworker or a neighbor's friend or somebody else's cousin had an extra ticket. And so now you can come too. And so when I look back on it, it, it all is a love story. Um, and even love stories have tragic parts in them, right? And so even if you didn't grow up in a place where you felt seen and valued, I mean, the fact that all three of us <laughs> felt like there were folks who poured into us, who were intentional about us, who looked for us, even in adulthood, right? Like I remember being a principal, <laughs> having a meeting in central office, I would finally get back to the door and my kids would be like, well, where were you? Because you said we come to school every day and we do our very best, but you weren't here. And I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> I had a meeting today, right? Like, and so there is this like, collective responsibility that I mm. wish we would think about. And, and there was a collective responsibility that was looking out for you, yes. that was looking out for, for the people who we didn't know. Um, right. and, and it connects back to when we talked about the other day about snow, right? Like I love the fact that there are so many people in my community who will shovel the front of someone else's yard. And in some ways it's like all you can do, but it, there is a collective responsibility. We all have to share this space together. And, and when we do that, we can be more caring. We can be more loving. We can be more present mm -hmm. and we can get back to the sense of like, oh, that's not my kid. We wouldn't allow that to happen in our schools. If I saw a second grader who needed something and a fifth grader walked by, I'm saying something to the fifth grader. Why did you let this second grader do this, right? Because it was all of us. And that's the same thing that we are describing. When we talk about the ways that our communities had a hedge around us to make sure that we could be what we needed to be. Yeah. All right. So let's get, let's get to this last topic. Oh, Michelle, you in my head. The roles of, uh, of the Black church and CBOs uh, in, in, in educating Black children. And so Let's kind of get to this because we got nine minutes until Abbott Elementary comes on. I know we're going to lose, folks. So, <laughs> so, so, Rob, we'll start with you, man. What's the role of CBOs in a black church? Um, I think uh, I'm going to use a metaphor. I was trying to find it online, but uh, the other day I was in a conversation. They started this like tech education type hub in Atlanta. Uh, I can't remember the name, maybe Pulse Center, but I think that's wrong. But anyway, and sister I was talking to, she was talking about um, the role of the porch in the black community. And it had never occurred to me like the porch being a metaphor for our community until we started having this conversation. I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. And when I think about the black church and CBOs, I see them as being on the porch, mm. right? Where when you're walking home and I don't mean the black church in the sense of I'm trying to convert you to believe in what I believe in. Yeah, of course. Right. Right. So I, I'm thinking about the ways in which for me, um, mama Iris in my church in Detroit <coughs> taught me the, the power of a work ethic while every fall she paid me to rake her leaves. And you know, like I thought I was doing something because I had a little, little few nickels in my pocket, right? And, um, but I also knew at the end of raking leaves, I was going to get a story. 
and it was going to be like a a moral to the story. And it was something at that point that I was just like, when I'm tired, I'm trying to get this bread and I'm trying to get this bread. I'm not trying to hear the moral of the story. But as I got older, <laughs> as she got older, uh, I would always go to her house and, you know, and obviously at the point that became a teacher, I raked her leaves and didn't ask for any money because I had a job, right? And um, I, I think that's the role of the, of the Black church, right? Is being available to support young people. CBOs, it depends on the CBO and the quality of their work. So I ain't going to get into, uh, <laughs> I ain't going to get into my critique. Please don't. Of some CBOs. Uh, but I think that there are, the, the role of CBOs is also to support schools when I think about young people and supporting after school to programs and out of school time learning, mm-hmm. right? And I think from a policy agenda perspective, if there's anything that people walk away from this episode and think about from a policy perspective, aside from the voting piece, we drastically underfund out of school time in America from a federal level, the local level, it doesn't matter. Philanthropy. Um, and I think it's important for us to double down as a community to push policymakers, politicians, and folks in philanthropy to fund well-done out-of-school time programs led by CBOs so that schools can actually focus on doing the work of educating children from eight to three or nine to three and we can give teachers a break and and provide quality support for young people after school. And I think that for me, uh, the role of CBOs is clear, in particular out, out of school time. But I also want to highlight that it's an underfunded, underdiscussed issue in pre-K through 12 education. Yeah. Uh, H, jump in here. Uh, look at the time. Yeah, I, I would say quickly, you know, I, I agree. And I wonder what would happen if we invested more in our black churches and in CBOs. And if that could take this pressure off of mm. schools that feel like they have to do everything right. Mm-hmm. And so I keep in this discussion about we need the schools open because kids don't eat. Well, we've got kitchens at churches that can stay open and provide meals, for folks. So well. about the, the ways that, you know, um, the church is supposed to be. Um, a, a place that is the doors are always open and that they should be the ones who are, I mean, if you think about the history of the black church, right? Like it was there where people were putting their nickels together to have money to buy things where they were having trunk parties to help young people who needed things to go on. They were doing right. selling dinners, right? They were cr- doing voter registration. They were doing mm. courses and who's got a scholarship and you would come up through the front and everybody would give you the you credit, right? You send in a little bit of money to suchy suchy. And so we have to think about it. And I think that the size of the black church um, and those that are focused in the community like with us, by us, right? Um, but mm. you know, sometimes today we see, same with CBOs, right? They become so large that they become more focused on revenue and not less focused on services for people. Um, and so if we got to we gotta rethink about the way that that looks and, and what we actually need. And, and all of these things, like your first jobs in the community, what you do for vacation Bible school, right? Where the fleet market mm. is, where the Christmas mm. play is, right? Mm. Like if we don't yeah. invest in those things, we won't have those resources and then we don't have those resources and we feel like we need to go outside of our community to do it. And so I think... Um, yeah, we, we can do better. 
Mary may we, drop that gem up in that piece. See, going see, down that hole. Hey, listen, listen. I'd rather I'd rather have uh five folks that are totally tuned in listening to us than to have five thousand folks that aren't right. And so I, I appreciate you guys in the audience today coming to check out this first episode of uh of Three Times Dope podcast. And um and so uh the El Michelle portion of the show. Uh, we had uh, five topics, and we talked about five topics, and uh, and so we did an amazing job according to the standards provided to us by L. Michelle. And so uh, thank you for that. So if we could get uh, a quick 30-second closeout, and Rob, I'm on you, right, because you're showing up like Reef today. 30 seconds. <laughs> Shout out to Sharif L. Mackey. That's my 30 <laughs> seconds. Yo, yo. All right, so 30 seconds, man. Closing thoughts. Uh, closing thoughts. Uh, I'm just excited to be here. I think that um, I appreciate the space. Uh, looking forward to the journey and our next episode uh, next week. My 30 seconds is why is my cat wilding out right now? Like, we've been doing this for months. Why is my cat acting nuts? Is it a full moon or like a Mercury retrograde? Oh, it is a full moon. <laughs> my final word protect your energy. Create safe yeah. boundaries, could protect your energy because this moon is, is acting up. Be safe out there. Yeah. And uh my final thought is I was talking to the sister uh Naomi Shelton today, and we were talking about uh retrograde audacity, right? And so some people be showing up at the spaces with some with some audacity, and we uh we reframed it and we're calling it retrograde audacity because some of these people, man, y'all be doing too much. Anyways, uh <laughs> next week. Tuesday, uh, 8 p.m. We'll be back with you. Uh, for now, you educators, you got two minutes to get some water and, uh, and jump on Abbott Elementary. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Peace. Peace, y'all.